The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. You are listening to another episode of the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. Welcome to our weekly episode where we sit and talk about the Cincinnati Bengals in what has become a very interesting offseason for the team. Hey, everyone. I'm Anthony Cazenza, and I'm joined by John Sharon. John, uh, are you are you doing – you feel like you're keeping up with all the news, rumors, media, narratives? I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Are you feel like you're – I mean, there's a lot out there about the Bengals right now. <laughs> I don't know what well, to make of it all. Well, none of it's new, and none of it's really news. It's the only thing that's keeping me on my toes. I think UC's losing to UCF right now in basketball, so that's the only oh. thing that's kind of worrying me right now. I'm, t- I'm tearing you away from from some b-ball. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the less I think about, it, the better. If they lose this game, they're probably out of the tournament. So, Ooh, that's not <laughs> yeah. good. That's uh, <laughs> they need to they need to get things going. They've they've been a they've been a turning standard over the past. Many, many years. I also think it's funny how sometimes we talk about things that are happening right now and people are listening to like Saturday and like, no, no this no, can't no. happen Monday. They're like, oh, yeah, they won. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for those of you who are tuning in live, whether it's through Cincy Jungle's Facebook page or our YouTube channel, the the, um, the video that we have there that is also embedded in a post on CincyJungle.com. So a lot of different ways to join us live. A lot of different ways to join us after the fact if you are unable to join us live. You can uh, listen to the audio through a number of different channels, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Megaphone, uh, iHeartRadio, basically wherever you get your audio podcasts, we should be available there. And then, of course, as I mentioned, we're on YouTube and all of our stuff is on CincyJungle.com. So get the show how you can. We've got a lot on tap tonight. A lot on tap tonight. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, we, we... Briefly touched on it the past couple of episodes, but it's getting out of control, this media narrative about Joe Burrow and the Bengals and the relationship there. We'll talk about that. We're going to talk about some recent comments by Zach Taylor. We're going to give you a, we've done this a couple of times, but we're going to give you a sound bite of the week that uh, whether it's a media person, someone within the Bengals organization or whoever, we, we sometimes tease you with a little sound bite of the week. So we've got one of those for you. We've also got, a couple of players for our free agency watch list uh, to, to round out the program this week. So we've got a lot to get to and let's, let's just kind of dive right in, John, if you are 
if you are ready, if you want to, if you want to take a collective deep breath, I don't know, man. It's uh, there's a lot to get to here. We've, I think, most people who have a finger on the pulse of the Cincinnati Bengals, their draft plans, Joe Burrow, all of that. I think they've probably got a good idea as to what is going on and the media narrative at the moment. It started a couple of weeks ago, right, with Dan Patrick uh, in an interview with Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow was kind of non-committal, nonchalant, whatever you want to call it, about the possibility of playing in Cincinnati. I think Rich Eisen ran with that a little bit. Mike Florio has just tried to do this every day of profootballtalk.com. <laughs> and it has just become and, – and since – it's trickled out more to like more local media outlets, uh, regional media outlets, kind of saying that Joe Burrow doesn't want to play for the Bengals. He has never come out and said this. He has never said, you know, when they've asked him about it, he hasn't been, oh, yeah, I would love to play there. But he also said, I'm not going to play there. I mean, it's I don't know where they're really coming up with this. Joe Burrow's family has come out on, on a couple of occasions now and said, this isn't true. We, we don't know where, where people are getting this. And now, John, we've got current and former Bengals players weighing in on the situation. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Where, how are you feeling about this whole topic? It's just, it, it, it's a lot of nothing. And when I say a lot, it's just a lot of nothing. And like, there's no, there's, there's no new information that's been, that's been given to us. I think the, the latest surge of these headlines are came up from I think his interview when he accepted the Davey O'Brien award for best quarterback in the nation. And then he mentioned, you know, you know, it was just, it was just answering the questions like he, like he has, he's, he's kept a consistent and stable, you know, methodology of, of navigating through this all. And I think he mentioned one thing about, you know, him having leverage and that comment was struck a lot of people's nerves, a lot of people's, um, you know, fingers and typing these new headlines about, oh, what type of leverage does he have? Is he talking about leveraging himself out of Cincinnati? He's talking about leveraging himself into into an Eli Main situation. I mean, people ran into you know ten thousand different angles about that. And in reality, in reality, the context of it was that he has he has leverage, or he's planning to use leverage of him being the unquestionable top quarterback in this class, and therefore making the process for him a lot easier than for other quarterbacks in, in the past drafts. And and I think that comment really it made me initially think. Not initially, but it eventually led me to remember something that happened with Kyler Murray last year. Now, at this time last year, or it was during Super Bowl week of 2019, Murray had declared for the NFL draft, but no one really knew for sure, like for sure, for sure, if he was going to give up uh, you know, his contract with the Oakland Athletics and drop baseball entirely and play football. So he was put on to the Rich Eisen show, and he had like a 10-minute interview with him. And immediately Eisen starts pressing him about, what are you going to do? You know, are, are you going to the combine? Are you playing football in a very you know polite manner? Because Eisen's a professional and he's a veteran. He knows how to do this stuff. And the way that Kyler answered these questions was very, not immature, but it was just extremely unprepared. Like he had no idea that these questions were coming and he just answered them in a very innocent and nonchalant manner. And it was like, it was very obvious that he wasn't prepared to answer these questions. And it, and it got me thinking like, you know, Burrow obviously has a, has a good handle on these things right now. He, he's kept a very consistent stance with how he's answering these questions. But it's also very fair that, you know, he's not fully acclimated to preparing to answer these questions in a very political manner. So when co comments like the leverage comment kind of slipped up, 
basically, you know, the media is going to run with that and take it in any direction that they want. And it kind of spearheaded to a point where like, oh my God, he's actually trying to leverage himself out of Cincinnati where he's actually, you know, trying to drop these hints that another team needs to come get me because I'm not going to play for Cincinnati. And it was almost like just the culmination of all this kind of popping up when in reality we haven't seen or heard anything new that can any that can substantiate any new reports from this happening. So I look at it, and, and I want to talk about the leverage thing a little bit more in just a second, John, but I look at it, it's almost like a high-profile politician, a high-profile, I mean, like a LeBron James athlete level, you know, where every word that comes out of their mouth is dissected and or taken into specific contexts. And this... Obviously, Joe Burrow's not at that level, uh, at least not as a pro athlete, but he is a superstar collegiate athlete, and he's set to be the number one pick in the most popular sport in North America. So, I, you know, I, I see the media taking taking some of these, you know, these words like leverage and some of these other phrases that he uses and his lack of... I guess, enthusiasm uh, or perceived enthusiasm about coming to the Bengals. You have to realize this guy in all of his interviews, even it, it, up to the Heisman, all that kind of stuff. Do you, do you remember what he sounded like in these sound bites? It was, yeah, yeah. He's, he's kind of just Joe cool. He's just, yeah, he's, he maybe gets a little more excitable on the field, but in these interviews, he's not a rah, rah, you know, just in your face, you know, larger than life personality. He's a pretty laid back guy. Um, so, you know, I think he's just kind of trying to enjoy the process. He's probably a little bit of a private guy. Um, hence why his parents have been speaking up a little bit on his behalf. And I think all this is kind of coming at him in waves where, you know, he has had this big ascension to potential superstardom in a really fast pace, as opposed to a Manning, um, you know, someone's like a Manning who has been a college superstar for a number of years. And then also maybe his dad played in the NFL. So he's been around the media for a really, you know, there are a lot of factors at play here. And the other aspect, John, that I think the media is doing with this is they're leaving out key phrases. They're leaving out the, yeah, I think it'd be a lot of fun to play in Ohio. Those were words that came out of Joe Burrow's mouth. They left out phrases like, you know, I'm trying to be the best football player I can be where, you know, basically wherever that ends up being. They leave out these key little phrases at the beginning or ends of these phrases or answers of questions that he gives some of these reporters. They take it and run with it and they try and create a storyline. Maybe this is a ploy that the media is trying to create to, to get, you know, without the potential surprise of who the team is going to take at number one overall. Maybe this is kind of their way of generating interest. I don't know. You had an interesting thought though, in terms of his use of the phrase of leverage in terms of contracts. I, 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 you know, when we were going through our pre pre-show notes, you had an interesting thought about that. And I wanted you to talk about that. Yeah, it was actually something that uh, influence that have been Ben Albright initially said, because this was still when, I didn't exactly know what the context of the leverage comment was, but honestly, like I, it, it got me thinking like, okay, you know, Bur- Burrow's a smart and savvy guy. He, he, he kind of knows how to, how to do these things. Like he transfers from OSU to, to LSU. He took control of his future. He knew what was best for him and all that stuff. He, he, he knows that this, he has a decent idea at this point of, from an external standpoint, how the Bengals operate. And he knows that, you know, 
they're not like other other mo- or most organizations in the NFL. It's not out of the realm for him to say like, okay, I know you guys are going to take me, but you know, like like this is the plan. It's not out of the realm to say that he could be leveraging himself to get a fully guaranteed contract. Now, most of these like the rookie contracts are mostly guaranteed for for the most part in this CBA, but there's going to be a new CBA coming out and and the structure of these rookie contracts are going to change in, in about a year's time or for the 2021 season. So it's possible that he and his agent are, are formulating a plan to make sure that he gets the most, you know, cash up front and the most, you know, guaranteed money that he possibly can, because th- th- this is the situation that's going to happen. And I think that he's just trying to get the most out of it as possible, not in a malicious way. He's just looking out for himself. And, th- and this is not saying that he, th- he has intentions of playing somewhere else or sitting out for the, for the year. That's not the leverage that I think he's he's trying to maximize here if he's talking about some other type of leverage. And I've said leverage so many times, I'm about to vomit if I say it one more time because it's not that big of a deal in the in the, in the, in the end of it all. But it, it's it's possible he's, you know, he's not doing the whole Carson Palmer thing where he's, you know, telling him, you better do these things, you better, or, you know, run your organization in this way or I'm not playing here or I'm out or anything like that. But, you know, it, it, it's possible that he can be maximizing the situation that he's in. And that just makes him a, a smart guy for, for being a 23-year-old rookie. And, it again, it's not obviously confirmed in any way, shape, or form. It's just an idea that, you know, he's recognizing the situation that he's in and it's it's possible this is an avenue he's trying to take. And, uh, again, yeah. I, I think I, I think Albright's idea had some weight to it, but uh, obviously, I think the whole leverage thing was more meant for the thing that we that we previously talked about, and less about this. And, and leverage, quote unquote, his use of the word leverage can mean a lot of different things. I mean, it can mean the financial way that you're talking about. It could also mean, hey, look, they're they're using a number one pick on me. I know they haven't had the modicum of success that you know some of the preeminent franchises in the NFL have had. So. You know, maybe I feel like I've got leverage to tell them, hey, you know, invest around me. If you're going to use a number one overall pick in me, make sure you invest around me. And maybe I have a little bit of say within the organization based on their previous, I guess, plugging of the ears from Carson Palmer. Uh, when, when Carson Palmer supposedly spoke up, maybe they've learned their lesson. Maybe he feels he has the leverage as the number one overall pick to get into the ears of Duke Tobin, et cetera. I don't know. Leverage can mean a lot of different things. I will say this, John. Initially, this really until about Monday, Tuesday of this week, this was purely negative. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was the media was coming out and say various people in the media were coming out saying he doesn't want to play there, whether that was grounded or not. It appears to not be grounded. Carson Palmer came out and basically, you know, kind of said how difficult it was to win in Cincinnati. You've had other players kind of speak up and you also have Joe Burrow training with Jordan Palmer out in Southern California in his elite QB camp. So who knows what Jordan Palmer is telling him in terms of, you know, if he's kind of chirping the same tune that his older brother had about did about the team. But Earlier this week, you've had Chad Ochocinco kind of basically say it's a great effing city, uh, and he plans to have dinner with Burrow before the draft. Now, Chad talks a lot of talk on Twitter. He, he walks a lot of walk, too, but who knows if he's actually going to have dinner with Joe Burrow. But he plans on sitting down with him and telling him what a great city Cincinnati is, apparently, according to a tweet he put out this week. 
Solomon Wilcox disputed some of the headlines that Mike Florio at Pro Football Talk used in some of his quotes and said, basically, you know, I think Joe Burrow can win in Cincinnati. And you've had Willie Anderson come out, Tyler Boyd come out, Auden Tate come out and support the team. Joe Mixon support the team publicly. Granted, those guys are under contract, so maybe you expect that. But a little bit more of positivity based on that in this situation because of those players coming out, right? Yeah, and I, I, I'm i the last person that wants to make an enemy or wants to villainize the media for this kinds of things. I, I understand that, like, I, I have the luxury, we have the luxury of, of reporting on and covering one team, so we get to focus intimately right. on the, the ins and outs of, the, of that team. So we obviously have a better grasp of the Bengals and how they operate in this situation in general because this is all we're focusing on. When, you know, you have to cover multiple sports and multiple teams from one sport, you kind of see the headlines and you kind of run with them because that's the nature of the business. You try to get things out as quick as possible. You try to garner attention. And that's essentially what a lot of the content here has been derived from. It's just a lot of buzzworthy type news items. It's the number one overall pick. It's the Heisman Trophy winner. It's the national championship. It's a team drafting first overall that is the stingiest, cheapest or cheapest of the incompetent organizations in the league. And that's almost an- another thing entirely. It, it we're still kind of lost in this whole, like, why are the Bengals being thrown under the bus so much more compared to other teams? And it's not because the Bengals are the only incompetent organization. Like the Lions, Jaguars, Browns, Redskins, a bunch of teams that haven't done jack squad, even relatively compared to the Bengals. But it all comes down to just how the how the media really fears, feels about this team. It's like it's a different level of incompetence. And this is something that we've talked about. It's the fact that they don't spend in free agency. It's the fact that they don't do a lot to support the idea that they are trying to win a Super Bowl. And the media will definitely run with that, especially when the Bengals are in this type of spotlight. But I will say, to your point, like essentially enough has gotten to be enough where the players are now starting to realize that this is, this is something tangible. This is not something that's going to go away quickly and it's only going to go away by winning. That's something that Zach Taylor talked about in in an interview that we're going to, that we're going to discuss upon later. But I almost think that, you know, that this could have ultimately at the end of the day, a positive effect because Joe Burrow is going to come here. He's going to be the quarterback of the Bengals. They're going to draft him. They're not going to trade him. None of this is going to mean anything in two months time. Obviously this is just like, we're just, in the in you know front center of the of the draft media cycle like we see it from afar all the time because the Bengals usually drafting in the 10 to like 21 spots and none of the the draft circus really circulates around the Bengals but now the Bengals are in the spotlight and they are getting all this attention and at the end of the day none of it means anything and 99 of it isn't true but all so it with if that's the case i almost want to say that because the players are starting to notice this because this is starting to be something that is obviously circulating through, you know, the the, the locker room and the brotherhood of, of this team, I almost think that it's going to turn into some type of, of a positive. It, it is, I do think it has some type of, you know, motivational type aspect and, and type of, you know, conjuring where this 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 can turn into something that fuels them in, into improving as a team, into you know, becoming just a better organization in general. I don't think this is going to change their whole philosophy. I don't think that this you know, pressure from the media is going to make them into a completely different franchise where they're going to be more willing to make riskier moves in free agency or anything like that. But I, I do think that if, if there's any type of, of pressure that can move them more so in the right direction and potentially push them into being a better team, I think this is the type of pressure that can achieve that. Yeah. Uh, you know, this could be something like you said. Um, this could be something that ends up being a 2020 rallying cry. You know, some of these guys, we see the um, 
we, we see some of these names on here. Yeah. Chad Johnson's on there. Um, and, uh, yeah. Joe Mixon on the bottom left. Yeah. yeah Joe Mixon, Tyler Boyd. And, uh, if you're a little sensitive to language, maybe keep your eyes away from Chad Johnson's tweet, but, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, Joe Mixon, Tyler Boyd, Sean Williams getting into the fray, Alden Tate. These are guys that are basically known as some of their core guys, right? Um, I mean, it, and they're kind of saying, you know, the, I can't believe what the media is doing. I saw, I, I'm unfortunately, I can't find the specific comment, but there was somebody early in the uh, early in the show here talking about. Joe Burrow and the chip on his shoulder. I mean, he kind of played with a chip on his shoulder. Imagine now coming into this situation where, you know, basically people think he's not going to be successful. You've got the other guys in the locker room who are their key young guys, Boyd, Mixon, and others kind of chiming in and, and joining that fight. I don't know. It could be something that, like you said, turns into a positive. So, um, you know, and and it also says something about the direction – that these players feel the team is going. We'll talk more about that with Zach Taylor's quotes in just a, a minute. But I mean, I, I would think John, that this bodes well in terms of their attitude. They were saying the right things last off season, obviously a two and 14 record didn't, you know, didn't go their way. Mm-hmm. They, they probably like, they wouldn't say it because they have respect for Andy Dalton, but they probably like the idea of an exciting new quarterback coming their way. They like the idea of probably a healthier roster that's set to be be there in 2020. And they probably liked what they saw out of Zach Taylor and his staff. I, I mean, as you kind of take, maybe we're, we're taking something and running with it a little too far, but when these guys come out and publicly support the franchise and say this is basically nonsense pumped out by a number of different media outlets, you got to feel good about these guys wanting to be in Cincinnati. You got to feel good about, you know, th- their idea of Zach Taylor. Yeah, and uh, uh, again, like I, I don't know how much of this pressure or, or even the, the positive comments at that point is going to really affect anything. But I do, I will say this: like th- th- these criticisms aren't necessarily new; they're just louder because the Bengals are now more so in the news cycle. But you know, like we wanted them to change, we wanted them to feel pressure, we wanted them to push into being a better team. But for so long. They've been, you know, content with the situation around them. Obviously, keeping Andy Dalton as their quarterback, keeping Marvin Lewis as their coach for the vast majority of, of Dalton's career here. So that the play, the other players like the Tyler Boyds, like the Joe Mixons, you know, the guys who you know tangibly show that they care and they, they show on social media. Obviously, they haven't really had the chance to really do anything about it because the status quo has always been the same. Well, now you have a new head coach who's entering year two, who's in a, in a much more comfortable and cohesive position compared to year one. And now, like you said, you have the best quarterback in the draft now leading your team or, or going to lead your team in two months' time. Now there's actually there's actually a chance to actually do something, change something for the better in terms of a positive way. And with all this noise now coming, you know, both positive and negative at this point, there's now something to respond to. And I think that uh, more than anything is going to energize a lot of these players who, you know, their careers are so, sort of kind of in the ruts now. You, you have guys like Boyd and Mixon who are still kind of ascending and obviously Mixon's getting paid or, or is trying to get paid and Boyd has already gotten paid, but also the guys like Atkins and Dunlap who are now in the twilight of, of their careers and how, you know, they've kind of capped off in terms of just reaching the wild card. Maybe they can be, you know, more excited now that they can reach new heights in terms of overall team accomplishments and boost their chances of, you know, becoming more than just Bengals legends. So it, like, 
we, we talked about in the regular season, nothing changes a team's attitude more than, than the play of, of the quarterback and the fact that they're not going to have an actual upgrade there to actually do something about all this. It, it can only lead to, to a positive change. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've said this before, I think in free agency in the draft, this is a meat and potato. I mean, aside from Burrow, this has to be a meat and potatoes type of draft in terms of, you know, getting guys that can protect your quarterback, getting guys that can pressure a quarterback, getting guys who can stop the run, kind of your linebackers, defensive and offensive lines. I think that's where the, the team really kind of needs to mostly focus aside from Burrow. I mean, you, you think about the idea of Burrow, Joe Mixon, Tyler Boyd, possibly a healthy A.J. Green, possibly a healthy Tyler Eifert coming back. It's a lot of skill position talent. Um, that and you're giving him right away a lot of skill position talent. It's more about protecting him, keeping him upright, and making sure the defense does something at least respectable this year. This brings us to our soundbite of the week. And this soundbite, many of you maybe have, have seen this or, uh, I don't know, or heard it, but it is from uh, ESPN's Mel Kuyper Jr., the famed draft expert, uh, a lot of people have some preconceived notions about Mel. I'll talk about mine in, in a few minutes. But uh, just a, a short clip. He was talking about, you know, he kind of did an ESPN mock early mock draft where he obviously had Joe Burrow going to the Bengals. And he talked about not only Joe Burrow, but the Bengals organization and, you know, th this this chatter surrounding Joe Burrow and the Bengals and Joe Burrow potentially not wanting to be on the Cincinnati Bengals. So let's cue this up. According to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Burrow says he has the leverage when it comes to the Bengals. People are saying he should pull like Eli Manning. What are you hearing with that situation, the number one overall spot? Well, first of all, this the, the, the bashing of the Bengals. Uh, the Bengals have been to the Super Bowl. Four teams in the NFL have never even been to a Super Bowl. Bengals have been to two against the 49ers and lost. One during Kenny Anderson era, then Boomer Esiason. They had success with Carson Palmer. They went to a playoff. They got hurt in a playoff game. And then Andy Dalton went to the playoffs. Okay, so this notion the Bengals have been just horrible and losing all the time and never even getting anywhere is ridiculous. So uh, I think for Joe Burrow, no, he's going to be the number one pick. He's going to be a Cincinnati Bengal. And like I said, uh, we'll move on from there. What the hell is everybody talking about how Joe Burrow, I mean, I saw on ESPN.com, Joe Burrow might have leverage yeah, with, 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 the, with the Cincinnati Bengals. I mean, excuse me, they've got the number one overall pick, right? What is he going to do, say, I'm not going to play football if you pick me? He's going to play no. Eli Manning? No. I don't think it's going to end up being that way. Everybody brought up John Elway. And of course, he had a baseball option. He threatened, but that was never doubted. And keep in mind, Ernie, of course, he was going to sign John Elway. The owner made the deal. Ernie, of course, he didn't make that deal. They were on their way to get an agreement with John Elway. It didn't happen. But uh, the Eli Manning case was different. You had Rivers sitting there. You had Roethlisberger in that draft. The other category league quarterbacks that were right there in terms of grade with Eli. Here, you had Tua with the medical situation and Justin Herbert with some mixed opinion. And Burrow had the one grade year. And he maxed he should just be happy, guys. He's going number one because going this year he had a sixth round grade. That 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 I think is like the main thing to take away from that because with Eli he was like going in, I believe, to that year. He was obviously the son of, of or he was the son of Archie, the brother of Peyton. So he had a, a bunch of NFL clout on his side already, and he was going to be, you know, going into the draft. He was by far like the the the, the clear top quarterback, even in a loaded class. But he, he he had a situation where he could 
weasel his way out of San Diego, who at the time was, you know, with, with Spanos running the organization was definitely not the, the, the cleanest run of, of NFL franchises. So he had a reason to, to have all that. But the, the, the fact that, you know, Burrow going into the season, like, like Mel said, was just an afterthought in the quarterback discussion. The fact that he's asserted himself to where he is now, like this is, this should be a dream come true for him. And I think in everything that he said, you know, leading up to this point, I think it, re- it reflects exactly that. So the, the mindsets between him and the difference, the difference of mindsets between him and Eli are just astronomical. And I think that just, just because the fact that Eli did that or just had his dad do it all for him, it means that now it's possible for Joe Burrow to do that. And it's just, that's just not the case. The fact that, you know, J- Jimmy Burrow has, you know, he has football experience, but he doesn't have the clout or, you know, it doesn't obviously have NFL experience like Archie Manning did. And he doesn't have the advice of a payment who had been in the league for five years already. So the situations aren't even comparable. And I think of all people, Mel Kuyper definitely understands that. I hold a, what I, what I think I guess is a minority opinion on Mel Kuyper Jr. I, I really enjoy the guy. Same. Um, I, I really enjoy the guy. I, I think he's knowledgeable. I think he's he he is one of the guys responsible for making the draft and its coverage the experience yes. that it currently is. So if you find him annoying or if you find him whatever, I think there you should have at least some level of respect for the guy because of what he has done for the NFL draft. Early in earlier in his career, he was a little more outlandish. You know, you remember the Jeff George thing, and there, there's all kinds of different stuff, but. I think he's entertaining. I think he's knowledgeable. You know, I, I, I get why a lot of people don't like him, but quite honestly, uh, he and Lewis Riddick really make the ESPN coverage currently watchable as it is. Um, I, I really enjoy, I really enjoy Mel Kiper Jr. The other thing to note, if you're if you're saying, well, he's kind of got this macro view, he doesn't really pay attention to the Bengals. Do you know where Mel Kiper Jr. is from and resides? I'm I'm gonna guess you're gonna say Cincinnati. No, close Bal- to Baltimore. So oh. if you noticed in that video, he's got an Orioles banner on 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 his wall. He knows the Cincinnati Bengals. He has been critical of the Cincinnati Bengals. It was mostly in the pre-Marvin Lewis era, but he also realizes and has seen what the Bengals have done in the years of Marvin Lewis and the success that they had with him and maybe the direction they're currently heading. This isn't a guy that doesn't know Cincinnati Bengals football. He's got a pulse on the, on the, you know, the organization. So I respect his opinion, not only as a draft guy, but I I respect his opinion when it comes to AFC North football, because he is intimately familiar with that division and he knows how those teams operate. He's got a pretty good pulse on things. And uh, you know, I, I, I just like, for all, for all this talk and, and all this attention, we're giving this these storylines that may, probably don't exist. I just like the Mel Kiper Jr. shot that down. Yeah, that, that was that, that was like the first line of defense. I think that all this has had. Like as soon as that happened, I think Wilcott's kind of came out and kind of like had had to correct a PFT article on on, on that was that was about him as well. So I, I guess I guess he was kind of like the catalyst to this kind of defense mechanism that <laughs> the Bengals Twitter is now getting. Yeah, so that was our soundbite of the week, Mel Kiper Jr. from ESPN on their show, First Take. Not necessarily my favorite show, but a highly watched program that uh, stars Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman on that show. But uh, credit to them for for giving us that soundbite this week, and hopefully you at least got a little bit of a semblance of relief as a Bengals fan listening to Mel Kiper Jr. at least somewhat support 
the Cincinnati Bengals and shooting down this narrative of Joe Burrow potentially saying thanks, but no thanks to Cincinnati with the number one overall pick. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. He's John Sheeran. I'm Anthony Cazenza. We're talking about the Joe Burrow narrative. We got to address it, and we we addressed it for a little while. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's kind of a reality that we have to talk about as we sit here in February. But the draft is around the corner, as is free agency. So, you know, we're going to move on and talk about Zach Taylor in just a second. But just a quick reminder, get this show how you can, any number of different audio podcast uh, apps or, you know, channels, all that kind of stuff. Check out our show. Check out Orange is the New Black, the podcast from Ace Boogie and Zim Hude, as well as Matt Minnick's Chalk Talk. All of the shows are part of Cincy Jungle's channel on the SB Nation network of podcasts. So yeah, let's switch gears to more more of a positive note, or at least we're going to make it kind of a positive note. Paul Daniel Jr. of The Athletic uh, had an amazing sit-down interview, very insightful sit-down interview with Joe Burrow's future head coach, Zach Taylor. Uh, this is now week 54, I think, of Taylor on the job as the Bengals head coach. And the whole point of this interview on The Athletic, definitely check it out if you haven't already, was just about his reflection on the first 12 months of his job and, and just seeing where he and the Bengals staff is now compared to where they were this time last year. Because if you read it, he, he dives into about the chaos that was going on right after he was hired. The fact that they had less than half the staff, you know, officially signed on, on, on the staff, like by this time in February, the fact that Nick Easton, the defensive line coach hadn't even like met most of the staff or even any of the staff by the time the, the NFL combine was already happening. And yeah, he was really late. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like the, the differences between where Taylor and his staff is now compared to where last year is, is astronomical. And he goes into that as well. I also like how he talked about, he keeps these bunch of uh, notebooks that basically it's, it's almost like his personal journals and he, and he kept them from all, all his past jobs, like the one in Miami uh, when he was office coordinator at UC and when he was the assistant in Los Angeles and they're all very nice and neat and kind of go back and look at him. But the, the journal he kept uh, for his first year at, with, with the Bengals is very tattered, very weathered down, and, it's, and, and it looks very ugly compared to the rest because you know, he, he talks about he constantly went through and back of it because it was the toughest year of his coaching career. And that's pretty obvious. First year head coach, 2-14. and 14. Um, But j- j- just this quote really just stood out to me. Just over the last month, I've been able to go back and look at my notes from the last spring. You really can't compare it. It's not reflection. It's just, oh, my God, remember that? how we got started to where we are now, how far ahead we are. It's just helpful to remind myself what days feel like compared to them. So, you know, there's obviously been, obviously been a lot of criticism about Taylor and, and the job he's done in this first year. The fact that they had just a horrific first offseason that was almost really scrambled together at the last minute to, to try to put together a team. But I also feel like with all the chaos, with all of the, the rushed, you know, structure of what this coaching staff and this team ended up being, I feel like he's deserving of some ter- some type of recognition for the positive things that he did because at least from you know the start of training camp to the start of the season, you definitely saw a difference in terms of how this team was built, how this team was run, and how the roster ended up turning out. So and and, and a lot of that, uh, some of that did translate into the, the later parts of the season when they started looking like a better team. So instead of looking at what Zach Taylor could have done better, instead of really you know be- beating him down when he's down as you know as a two and fourteen head coach in his first year. I, I kind of feel like this is an opportunity to look at the things that he did well in the, in the rushed timeline, in the, in the rushed 
uh, time period of when he got hired to when he had to put together staff. So it, what was the one thing, Anthony, that you think Zach Taylor did very well in, as, as a first-year head coach who really had not a lot of time to put, to put things together? I mean, there are a couple of things where I can, you know, there are a couple of things come to mind, but I'm, I also have examples that contradict the, those those positives. But I will say he is a guy that, unlike Marvin Lewis, he was willing to give young guys time early, and he was w- willing to kind of take risks in terms of giving guys playing time. The Ryan Finley thing. I don't want to say it was a necessary move, but the team was winless and he had to see what, what Ryan Finley was going to give him. It was a disaster. And Ryan Finley is never going to be an NFL caliber starting quarterback, maybe a spot starter guy at best, but between that giving, giving Jermaine Pratt more time and saying Preston Brown, you're not getting it done, man. And we paid you a lot of money Bye. I, I mean, you had to think that was a Zach Taylor, Lou Anarumo call because management seemed to really like Preston Brown signing him to a second contract and a lucrative one that offseason. Um, you know, making changes on the offensive line, trying to continually find the right formula based on all of the guys that were out of the lineup. Um, you know, I, I, same thing at wide receiver. You know, uh, th- there was um, – you know, some, some things weren't working early in the season and, you know, then he kind of moved things around and had to, you know, he had to kind of play musical chairs, both by his choice and kind of not by his choice with the, with the injuries. But by the time you saw him tinker with things, not be afraid to experiment with things, you saw some, some positive momentum at the end of the year, you saw the run game start to work a lot better and they gave, the football to one of their best players on the team and who was available in Joe Mixon. You saw Andy Dalton play better down the stretch. Once they did some things that were designed, some things that were more in his wheelhouse of, of a skill set. So, you know, I, it, it was a rough, rough go of it, but I, I would say just his, his flexibility to give certain guys snaps, um, his willingness to give young guys some snaps over veterans that that wasn't always the case with Marvin Lewis. And uh, I, I got to give him a pat on the back for that and, and really weathering the storm. I mean, John, we've, we've talked about this. The guy had the toughest stretch I can think of to start his, his NFL coaching career late start getting here. We'll talk more about that late start putting together his staff, probably admittedly. I mean, he'll say, He's got the guys he wants, but he probably had to settle on a couple of coaching positions. Um, he's already walking into a position with a s- very small scouting staff as compared to the rest of the league. He loses his first round pick for the for the entire year. He loses his star receiver for the entire year. I mean, it just snowballs and snowballs and snowballs. More and more injuries. He had a he had a tough go of it, but uh, I think his willingness to move guys around get guys a lot of playing time. That's something I felt was a good strength of his. Yeah. And I think, you know, for, for as much as people talk about you know, the Bengals and their competency as an organization, that, that was something that I, I don't think a lot of people gave Taylor the benefit of the doubt. The fact that he was walking into an organization that, you know, bless his heart, Marvin Lewis did his very best in the 16 years here to make do with what he had. And it's very hard for, you know, a first time head coach to 
to walk into this specific organization and to do things that have never been done before. I, I think for me, just personally, it's just how he handled the center situation. Like the fact that, you know, th- this team completely botched that position for the better part of five years. The fact that they were so loyal to Russell Bodine that they even offered him a long-term extension that thank God he turned down and went to Buffalo. Then they ended up replacing him with Billy Price, who ended up being basically just, just as bad. And the fact that, you know, they, 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 they handed, you know, Billy Price the starting job again, you know, when he got healthy in late 2018, even though Trey Hopkins definitely looked like the better option. The fact that they had, you know, they unfortunately dealt with the injury to Price, but they gave Hopkins a fair chance in training camp. They gave him a fair chance in the middle of the preseason. They named him the starter in the week three of the preseason. They made no, no BS about it. They didn't waste any time and they gave Hopkins every chance to succeed. And he obviously did. And, you know, they didn't waver with all the chaos that was going on with the rest of the offensive line. And then they ended up signing Hopkins to an extension, you know, right before the season ended. It was like, it, I guess it's relative to my expectations of how they handled that position in, in years past, but it could not have been handled any better. And I think it's just a testament to when he's given the right situations, when, you get, when he's given the right players and he's given the time to handle them, I think it, it, it speaks well to how he can handle the rest of the roster because to your point, like, like you said, the fact that he wasted you know no time as soon as he realized that Preston Brown is just not the guy that they expected going into the season, they, they, they cut him and they gave Jermaine Pratt the chance to start at middle linebacker, and what do you know, Pratt improves for the second half of the season. I think it's just those little, little instances of, of hope that speak volumes about you know just his, just his advanced his his advanced vision in terms of maximizing player strengths and maximizing where to play players and, and and how to manage the rest of the depth chart. That at the end of Marvin Lewis's tenure, he was very lacking on, and he was very reliant on to more more of these veterans where. Where, where Taylor is just like, let's just let the best players play. And I think that's really, he didn't really have a choice in that because they were just so bad that that was just the only option at that point. But the fact that they did, you know, alter the running game completely by, by midseason because they didn't have the personnel to do what they wanted to do from a schematic standpoint, that also spoke volumes as well. But I, I think it's just that, it's just that how the, exactly how they should have handled that position that they've mismanaged for the better part of half a decade. And I, I think it's just, I, again, it, it might just be relative to my expectations of how it was handled, but uh, that, that that just stood out to me because of, of how awful that how much of a liability that was, and how much if they can you know manage that and manage to make it an asset from a liability. I think in in due time, this offense line can return to the form that we saw in the mid 2010s. Yeah, and really, it's I mean, I guess if we want to you know take a thirty five thousand foot statement of it, I. It's really his willingness to be a little bit more risky when it comes to personnel decisions as opposed to the previous regime. You know, they they fell into a comfort zone. They they yeah, they they played some some rookies and, and whatnot. A lot of it was out of necessity, Andy Dalton, AJ Green, but you know, they, they had veterans that they preferred and and really there wasn't competition for a lot of spots. There wasn't a lot of benching of guys. And and that's what you saw. I mean, the starting quarterback was benched. Right, you mentioned their former first round pick, the start, the center, benched. Uh, Damian uh, Damian Willis, you know, he was a, a starting guy at the beginning of the year, benched. You know, so I mean, it's it's this, you know, continuing to tinker with things and and taking risks that you maybe go, whoa, that's very un Bengals like. Um, and and it was a little bit refreshing. It was a little shocking, and it didn't always work out. But I, I think that's one thing. I, I think a lot of people, John, and I want I, I just to kind of continue the conversation here. A lot of people would say, "Okay, well, he's talking about the 
you know, the, the lack of time with uh, the coaching staff and cohesion and all that kind of stuff, you know, is it an excuse or is it a solid reason? Is it both? I think it's both. I want to get your take on that and how you feel that, that their first full off season together and in the scouting process, in the free agency process, if you think things will be, you know, monumentally improved because of that. Right. And it, you're right. It, it is a little bit both because it, it doesn't matter if it's two weeks or two months. You should have been able to realize that Bobby Hart and Preston Brown were the type of players that earned the contracts that you gave him. I don't know if it was just the fact that they just panicked because they didn't have a good landscape of, of other options at those positions. So they just gave them these contracts that essentially worked out to be one year deals and just kind of went with it. But I, I, I do like this quote from Taylor that uh, Daniel Jr. got. It doesn't matter what team you're a part of year two, you have such a, a better grasp of the needs of the team. You might have heard it. You might have watched the tape, but until you're around certain players within our own schemes, year two was such a big jump. We are so far ahead right now. Draft prep, free agency prep, all be on the same page with exactly what we need to upgrade ourselves and improve. And I think that leads into the main thing that they need. And that's just a concise plan, a plan of how to get better, a plan of where to attack in free agency, a plan of where to improve the roster. Because for, for the most part last year, it was just signing guys that they you know, were, were comfortable with, that, that they knew of from either past experience with the coaches. That was B.W. Webb and Kerry Wynn. It was getting John Miller, you know, a, a middling starter as their biggest um, you know, external free agency contract. And now they're looking at, you know, bringing in competition for him. So none of their signings that they went out and, and got, you know, nearly matched the, the, that, you know, the competition that they gave him. And obviously, you know, only, I guess, CG Zoma ended up being the, the, the best contract that they gave to a player of, of their own right. So there, there wasn't, there was clearly a lack of a, an actual plan last year. They knew they needed to upgrade the offensive line. They knew that they knew that, you know, they needed some infusion of talent at linebacker. And that's where the, the, the selection of Pratt came in, but other than that, it was just, it, it, it was very noticeably, you know, lack of any, any sense of direction. And if they get, you know, improve upon that in any aspect, it, it can lead to a better off season. It can lead to a more productive off season, but it's never been about spending the most money. And that's what, you know, you know, people are going to look at in terms of, Oh, if they're really competitive to winning, then they're going to go out and get these market. No, no, that's never, that's never been the case. It's never been what Bengals fans have wanted. It's just wisely spending the money. It was, it's making an effort to actually Im improve upon players, not just by throwing money, but actually getting quality talent on, on the open market. And, I don't. I don't know if that's going to absolutely change. If that's if that's going to be extremely apparent. But if they have a better direction about what this team is and where they need to improve, where on the roster they need to improve, then that's obviously a big step. And they obviously have more time with the coaching staff. The fact that they only have, I think, four new coaches on staff, they they have a lot more chemistry with, with each other. They have a, a better sense of what this roster is because you know the roster didn't really change that much. But now they have a lot more time to evaluate it and to realize which players need to go, which players can stay, and where in, in the draft and free agency can we see improvements on this roster. So if there's any improvement on, upon there, it's it's only good news. Yeah, and I, I, we said this before when they were when they were engaged in it. Their coaching at the Senior Bowl, I think, is a, is a big, big, big piece of their scouting process and hopefully a helpful one. Um, I, I think that they them being – hands-on with a lot of those prospects is a big deal. I've seen a lot of stuff, and this is – I talked about risk, John. Seen a lot of comments in our live chats, Michael Caldill and the uh, live Facebook and a few others in our live YouTube kind of talking about, you know, cutting Kirkpatrick and blah, blah, blah. The, the, that's, that's 
what I'm interested to see this year in terms of the risky moves. Are they going to cut guys that we we think maybe could be cut or restructure or something? The Bengals don't like to normally do that. They don't like to eat money. They don't like to put out the vibe that they put out a, you know, gave somebody a bad contract or we're, we're on the losing end of a contract. Drake Kirkpatrick, you know, been a, a decent player at times for the Bengals, but he's making quite a bit of money. And he's, he's one of those guys that could be out there. Um, Dalton, you know, his, his future, uh, that's kind of what I'm interested in, in terms of, you know, are, are they going to make some of these more, I don't know, Unbengals like moves a little bit, some that have some risk associated with them to free up space to get the middle to somewhat upper tier free agents and or guys that are their system guys and could be more effective. That's what I'm really curious about this offseason. I, I will say that people are looking for you know a sign that things have changed in free agency. I think we're only going to see that if they actually do go out and, and give a guy more than what 10 million guaranteed money on the open market, which is still a lot for them. Um, but I think in terms of what you were talking about, I think the fact that they cut Preston Brown, the guy that they gave three years to in the middle of last season, I think that was the clear defining moment. Okay. That they are capable of making transactions like this. And there's been a lot of writing on the walls about them cutting Corey Glenn and then heavily considering cutting Drake or Patrick. And obviously there's been reports about they're willing to work out a trade with Andy Dalton. And that was obviously going to be assumed, but I think those three specific moves have been uh, heavily speculated to the point where it's almost an inevitability now. So I think the fact that they did that with Preston Brown only reconfirms the fact that they are in this new kind of new a new age mindset where they're, they're not afraid to let go upon past mistakes because there is a sense of urgency. Now they do have some type of new window opening up with, with Joe Burrow coming in. And I think they're willing to take advantage, take advantage of it to an extent to, to the extent that we can expect a team like the Bengals to take advantage of it. Yeah. And Mike Holbrook in the Facebook chat, uh, you know, it kind of nails it. Bengals need to do something different if they want to fill seats. That's the big key this year, John is uh, the attendance thing. And tickets, I mean, they, they, for the past couple of years, they have been not well attended. And, you know, last year it was about, we heard the fans. So that's why we made the, the coaching overhaul. That didn't do it when the team wasn't winning games. So now it's going to be quarterback and hopefully more splashy personnel moves in free agency. Um, and hopefully they, you know, they net some picks maybe for some of these guys that they ship off that, become players that end up helping them out, especially immediately. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. Get the show how you can on a number of different audio platforms. Uh, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. We are on uh, Megaphone and iHeartRadio. You can also get the program on YouTube. Subscribe to our channels. Get updated as to when we go live, when we have new material coming out. So you can either join us live or download it when it's on the channel. We appreciate your support. John, let's finish it up here with some free agency spotlights. Um, I'm going to lean on you with some PFF expertise, if you don't mind. Uh, you, you had a specific player, and I know the player you're going to talk about is, uh, first of all, he has, a, he has the same first name as a guy that they pursued last year in free agency. But mm -hmm. he also comes from a team that they love to poach players from. And you had talked about him recently in terms of a guy that kind of fits their mold of a 
usual free agent signing or, you know, maybe a little bit, a little bit higher than what they normally spend in free agency, but a decent name. Nonetheless, your gentleman that you are going to spotlight this week is uh, Shaq Lawson, who is an edge defender from the Buffalo Bills. He was a first round pick in the 2016 draft and they did not utilize his fifth year option a couple years ago, primarily because through the first three years of Shaq Lawson's career, uh, he did not live up to the billing of being a first overall, uh, being a first round pick. He was a decent prospect coming out of Clemson, but he didn't really have that really dominant trait. I guess that a lot of edge players need to really, you know, warrant that specific selection in general. But Lawson was always a decent player at Clemson. He was a better, a better run defender than he was a pass rusher. And because he didn't have really top end athleticism to to his credit, but year four for him was really, I guess, a turning point for his career in general. He had a career high in sacks, a career high in pressures, as we see from Pro Football Focus. He had his best the pass rushing grade as well. So it's kind of more like, <laughs> you know, I'll just I'll just get this out of the way too. Um, last week uh, when we did this free agency spotlight, I mentioned DJ Humphreys as a guy that the Bengals could look at, maybe as like a one or two year type of prove it deal. And the thing with Humphreys is that he got a three-year extension for $45 million with like 30 of it guaranteed. So I guess I guess Lawson's the next guy to get some type of extension to, to, for a lot more than what I expect. But Lawson had that same kind of career trajectory that Humphreys did where he had his best year in his contract year, which could bode well for him on the open market. I brought him up uh, earlier this week on, on like a tweet as like a guy the Bengals could target him for agency because PFF projected that he would receive – a one-year, five to six million dollar contract is more of a prove-it deal to see, you know, if 2019 was was kind of the year that teams could expect going forward. Because again, he can be relied on as a run defender, but the real value in terms of where the contract money goes to is as a pass rusher. And he had his best year as a pass rusher last year for a very good Buffalo Bills team, uh, as, as you can see here. He had more of an up and down uh, year. He was a little bit better off during the early portions of the year, but. In terms of just generating pressure, he was pretty consistent throughout most of the year. But he's never going to be that dominant pass rusher. He's never going to be the guy that you build your defensive line around. That's not what the Bengals need. They do need edge depth. That is definitely something that they need to focus on because they only have Dunlap, Hubbard, and Lawson to their credit. They need to get creative in terms of how they can generate more pressure, how they can keep Dunlap and Hubbard fresh and give a guy that can work also with Lawson in those three, four sets. And I think um, I think another, adding another, another Lawson could be good for that. And it just, it's going to depend on what he really wants from the market because it, it only takes one team to give him some type of, you know, more relatively lucrative deal than what the Bengals could be willing to give. I think, again, in, in that five to seven million dollar range for like a one to two year deal, I, I think works pretty well for lot, five to seven per year and not, not just total money. So if he gets a two year deal, it could be in that 12 to 14 million dollar range as well. Um, but again, as a guy who can rotate as your third or fourth pass rusher, I think that that's where he would thrive the most. Again, some team could give him some type of starter money, and maybe he's at that level now, but I'm not exactly sold on him. I wouldn't give him some any, anything more lucrative than the deals that I currently mentioned, but I think he's a guy that, that fits what they need at that position and could also free up um, a, or close indeed entering the draft. Yeah, hard, hard to predict where the market's going to be for him. Um, you, like you said, someone may throw starter money at him or, you know, the, the market could cool on a guy that hasn't really shown much except for, you know, one year and that one year, oh, by the way, that's a contract year. Right. So, right. uh, you know, that, that gets, what did he have? Seven sacks this year. Um, and then a combined 10, the, the three previous years combined. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
a little bit of risk there. And I think, John, aside from maybe being in the price point for the Cincinnati Bengals, we said this also about DJ Humphreys. This is a guy, former first-round pick, a name a lot of people know, maybe hasn't fully lived up to first-round expectations, thus is more affordable for a guy that potentially brings you upside. Maybe the Bengals get him and he's hitting the prime of his career and he's actually kind of quote unquote getting it as a, as a pro. Whereas, you know, there are some issues maybe in the first, first couple of years, but um, yeah. uh, His, so his PFF grade last year, am I reading this right? 67.9 overall. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And what PFF will tell you is that it's not the, it's not like the sack numbers that are indicative of future success. It's really, it's really, they, they like to promote their grading as, as the thing that really projects some, some type of trajectory. He started off with really poor pass rushing grades, but it's just slowly gotten better over time. And and as you can see, his run defense grade was always in that, in that above average area for the, for the middle of his career. So he's always going to be pretty decent at that. He's only 25 or 26 years. He's going to be 26 entering this year. And if he does have that type of, if he go, if he does, you know, accept a one year deal and le- like a Shaq bear where he kind of bets on himself and he ends up in the right situation, I can promise you if, if he balls out for the Bengals, the Bengals would love for him to accept some type of market setting deal the next year to then get a third or fourth round compensatory pick. So that that's, that's winning in their book for sure to, to get this type of cheap production to fill it, to fill a need for just a year. And then to see him, you know, to take a deal from another team and, you know, have another team take on that risk, but then them reaping the benefits of, of a, of a mid round pick in, in compensation for him. But again, it all depends on, you know, what one or two teams are going to be willing to pay, pay for him. But I don't think, his market's going to be as explosive as others, but again, this is free. This is predicting, you know, how NFL teams are going to spend their money, and he plays a very valuable position, and he has his best year in a contract year. So it could honestly go either way. Yeah, and uh, one thing that's kind of interesting in free agency in general um, for for guys like Lawson, where they test the market, maybe sometimes they overvalue themselves, and then you know what happens is they take that rental deal, right? That that one year deal, and then they try and parlay that into a a productive year to get a, a potential bigger contract. I think Darquez Denard did the same thing last year. And, uh, you know, the hope is that he thinks he'll get a big contract somewhere and uh, we'll see what happens there. The guy I'm going to go with uh, is a guy that is one of the biggest names on the market. He's at a position of need for the Cincinnati Bengals. And I, I it's it's a little bit of a pipe dream. But the reason I bring him up is because a lot of Bengals fans are talking about him on Twitter. A lot of Bengals fans are talking about him in in various outlets. And that's uh, Joe Thune, the guard from the Patriots. Um, You know, he's a guy that is coming off of his rookie deal. Uh, There there are a lot of things to like about him, okay? Um, The big thing, especially when you look at the Cincinnati Bengals and you look at what what their offensive line went through last year is durability. All four seasons he's played in 16 games and with 16 starts in each each of the regular season games and then of course same thing with the postseason. Now, you know, the the cynical Bengals fan will say, "Oh, watch, they sign him and <laughs> uh, you know, that'll change." But um a guy that you know, is very, very durable and is a guy that, you know, should step in and solidify a position that, um, 
they need. Now, a couple of things here. The Bengals, in terms of concerns with him, the Bengals don't normally pay guards a lot of money. They gave, they gave John Miller a good, a decent contract last year, but they seem to be disenchanted with him, at least from what Paul Daner Jr. has said. Um, so we don't know what's happening at right guard necessarily. They seem to like Michael Jordan in the upside there. We don't know what's happening with Cordy Glenn. And the other thing, John, that I think we need to, before we dive into the numbers here, the other thing that I think we all need to take pause is, you know, everybody's like, oh, you know, Nate Solder and, and all these Patriots players come out. They become these hot commodities in free agency. And what, what do we learn? That the parts are not greater than the whole, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, once these guys get out of the New England way or get out of that Bill Belichick, Tom Brady system, they're not as effective. Um, and we've seen teams strike out on a number of different Patriots players in free agency once they leave, and the Patriots are masters of getting guys in, getting a handful of productive years out of them, and knowing when to cut bait in terms of you know costs and all that kind of stuff. This guy could be one of those players, but the numbers point to a guy that should be a, a solid addition to the Bengals offensive line. You see his um, you see his offensive ranks uh, down here, 65.6 as a rookie, and then he shoots up to close to 80 in terms of a PFF overall grade on offense, 79.2. So the pass blocking is outstanding. Um, last two years, 85.3 and 88 last year. So, um, you know, a lot to like there. Run blocking, definitely not his forte, but these numbers still are much higher than what many of the Cincinnati Bengals offensive linemen gave them last year. Now, in terms of what he will command, it's probably going to be quite a lot. So the Cincinnati Bengals will need to, um, you know, this a move for Thune would probably be predicated on them freeing up the money from Andy Dalton and maybe even another player on their roster that's eating up significant calorie, uh, salary cap space. But, you know, the – this is a guy that could be had, and it would really send a message to the team, the fan base, and Joe Burrow that, hey, we're committed to bringing in talent at this spot. Again, I'm hesitant because of the Patriot effect. I'm hesitant because the Bengals don't normally pay big money to guards. They've done it a couple of times. Bobby Williams, they've given, you know, they gave him a couple of contracts. And then, of course, um, you know, they, they gave a decent one to John Miller last year, but, um, you know, Thune would come in and be immediate upgrade and would be a guy that I think, um, you know, could, could really go a long way to solidify the line and open up the draft. It could really open up the draft for them. And that's kind of key. Um, what else am I missing in terms of analysis on this player? John, do you have anything else to add with him? So, yeah, like, <laughs> PFF, they, they projected all these contracts, and he's really going to be battling Brandon Scherf for the highest guard contract mm-hmm. uh, on the open market. And I think PFF is projecting Scherf to get $14 million on average, 35 guaranteed, and Thune right below him with $13.5 million per year, 30.5 guaranteed. Now, mind you, AJ Green had the highest guaranteed, con- high, had the highest percentage of guaranteed money for a multi year deal, or the highest total guaranteed money with 32. And they're probably going to be giving AJ Green another, you know, another extension here with a, a decent amount of guaranteed money. So like Thune, he's just, he's just not going to happen. Like I, I want it. I want, I would love it. For, I would love for it to happen, 
but if it's going to happen, it's going to be a lot less than what he could make elsewhere. And there's just no incentive for him to do that. It's going to like, if they didn't pay Kevin Zeiler, you know, the, the 12 million that he wanted, there's no way that they're probably going to pay Thune. But with, with Thune, like, like you said, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the Patriots you know, deal with the fact that they don't have Dante Scarnucci, their offense line coach anymore, who's been just as, just as big of a pillar for that dynasty as Belichick and Brady. And I will stand by that statement. Him yeah. as offense line coach has been, maybe the most underrated assistant coach in NFL history with, with how stable that offense line has always been. And the difference is because he, he has retired before and the, the drop, the drop off when he wasn't there was definitely noticeable, but Thune, you know, is a great story as an undrafted guy who's slowly improving, you know, throughout his career. And the fact that he, he's only making, he only made I think, on average 800,000 on for, for his rookie contract. So the, the escalation for his next contract might be, it's going to be huge, but it might not put them at the top of the average market because they always like to, you know, incrementally in- increase their salaries for what they previously made. So that could be the only way that the Bengals could kind of weasel their way into a contract like this. But yeah, just like the, the like you, you look at those stats and look at those grades. I look at no penalties this year. Like he was yeah. one of the best. He was one of the best pass blocking guards in the NFL and had no penalties to his name. And obviously the the gradual increase in consistency from a grading standpoint the fact that he i don't think he missed any snaps in his first four years whatever he was a consistent starter all the left guard spot too and i think that's also gonna gonna matter for them because i think just reading about the, the reports of where this offense line could see some shakeups they, they must really be comfortable with, with at least penciling in michael jordan as a starter at left guard and i would think that if they add a guard in for agency he's probably gonna have more experience at right guard to see if they, he can challenge miller and I, I would I, I would imagine that Thune is, is the athlete and, and the technician to handle both sides of the center. So I don't think that's going to necessarily be a problem. But I believe that they would prefer to have someone who can handle who's had experience handling on the right side. And, that, and that's Scherf, but obviously not going to pay a guy like Scherf either. So it, yeah. it, it, it's it's tough like paying guards nowadays because how valuable they really are. It, it's 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 really anybody's guess to, to be honest with you, especially with an offensive line that is dealing with multiple holes and whether you can justify giving one offense lineman, you know, so much more guaranteed money, so much more total money than what the, you know, the four other players you're paying combined. And you still have another hole or two left to fill. So Thune would definitely be, uh, you know, their best offense lineman for sure. And I believe he, he will a- end up being worth the money that he's given because he's just that good. It's just that. Yeah. He's it's, durable. It, yeah and he's durable. So like this, this would be money well spent for a, a team that doesn't like to spend a lot of real cash, but it's just too much real cash for this team in specific. Yeah. And the other thing too, to note the Cincinnati Bengals weren't short on guards last year. They were short on tackles. Um, So Mm -hmm. they had a lot of guards playing tackle. So they would be maybe more apt or more prone to spend money or high draft capital on tackles as opposed to guards. Uh, But again, they've also got money tied up in, in Cordy Glenn who, you know, they could free some money up there. They could free some money up with John Miller if, if they so choose. And those are the types of – that's the type of money that could be possibly thrown to a guy like this. Another thing, too, Brian Kramer in the live YouTube chat says, Thune is a local guy. Yeah, he's from Ohio. So, um, you know, that could be something where maybe he wants to go back home, so to speak. And, right? and that could be like a, a couple million dollars discount. But he's still going to get right. you know, above 60 right. on the open market. You know, Right, right. Um uh, you know, just to kind of close it up here, some of the some of the interesting things here. Buffalo had one of the best, you know, one of the better defenses, eighty four point one pass blocking in the first game. Uh, 
not so great in the second one, 66.9 against the Bengals, uh, 82.8. Interesting to note there. Um, pass block rates, uh, 70.5 overall. He just didn't have a bad game, really. Yeah, for, I mean, I guess won. Baltimore, a very solid game, 78.5 overall. Um, you know, just a, a just a solid, solid player. I don't know that he'd ever be a, a you know perennial Pro Bowl guy, but he would be a very big upgrade for this team that needs offensive line help. So, Joe Thune and Shaq Lawson are our guys for the 2020 free agency watch list as free agency comes down the pike really in in just about a month now, John. Uh, At least open market free agency is coming in about a month. A little bit before that is when teams can kind of negotiate with players and all that kind of stuff. But we're we're rounding the corner to that and the NFL draft sooner than we know. So let's drop the mic and get out of here, John. Uh, You have an announcement you'd like to make, and it's pretty big for the show. Yeah, so when I was down in Mobile for the Senior Bowl, um, me and Joe Goodberry and uh, Patrick Carlisle, who also writes for the site, as you guys may know, is LB3 Point Man. We were doing some networking at this bar called Vitz, where basically all the writers and the media guys hang out. And I had the great pleasure of meeting Pro Football Focus's Austin Gale. And he and Mike Renner are the two lead guys who run all the draft work there. But you know, Gail's been with PFF for a few years now. He knows all the ins and outs. He does a bunch of NFL grading as well. Got to talking to him for 20 minutes, and he invited me to the PFF offices that are just two miles away from my house in downtown Cincinnati. And the plan is uh, on Thursday morning, which is tomorrow morning, I'm going to be interviewing him for an article on Cincy Jungle, and you'll find that on the on the website. Of, you know, if you're listening to this later in the week, it may already be on the website. But the plan is to get a tour of the facility and to ask him a few questions. There'll be a lot of there'll be a, a obviously a, a decent number of Bengals questions in there as well, but I know that a lot of our listeners aren't really the biggest fans of PFF, mainly because it's just they don't quite understand it, and obviously that's completely understandable because they have their own methodology, and people think it's mainly subjective, but my goal is to inform people about PFF and to give them a, a better understanding of what they're all about and to kind of help gauge, you know, understand the value of, of it as I see it, because I'm obviously a big PFF fan. I subscribe to their services. That's how you've been seeing some of these profiles that we've shown in the past couple of weeks when we do these free agency watch lists. Obviously, the information can't be taken at face value. Like, it can't be taken too literal, um, but I do think it, it does have value, and I hope to learn more about it in my interview with Austin. So that will be an article on Sid Jung and hopefully a separate um, audio interview that you will hear on this podcast network. So definitely check that out in the coming days. Yeah. It should be an enlightening interview. And uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's good that people get a little bit of a, a baseline as to what PFF does and, and why that's taken into account um, to why it's so heavily taken into account in terms of uh, what teams use and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've got, I, I guess I'll use the, the mic drop for uh a couple of announcements as well. Thanks to Mike Holbrook, one of our listeners. I've been in touch with uh, Reggie Williams, the longtime Bengals linebacker who played, uh, gosh, almost 20 years for the team. He was an Ivy League guy, played for the Bengals his entire career, played in two Super Bowls. Um, the beginning of March is where we're looking to have probably the first episode, first of our weekly episodes. 
Um, so right before free agency is when we're looking to have Reggie Williams on the show. He's going to be announcing a book he's putting out. So he kind of felt that that would maybe be a proper time. And uh, so we're going to be talking with him. So thanks, Mike Holbrook, for the connection there. Um, spoke with him on the phone last week. So we're going to try and coordinate that. We're uh, along with Austin Gale and, uh, you know, Reggie Williams. We're trying to get interviews with other uh Bengals players, those connected with the team. Um, you know, we've had Willie Anderson on, on the program before. I, I, we're planning on reaching back out to him. He he was willing to come back on the show, so we're hopeful to get him. Been in conversations with some folks in Anthony Munoz's camp, and uh, we're trying to lock him down in the near future. So he should be coming back on the program as well. You know, we've got a lot of different things coming down the pike. We want to bring in more interviews, whether it's as standalone episodes or what have you. But uh, we're trying to get some more folks, uh, you know, that have either been on the program or it's been a while or never been on the program that we want to bring to you to bring some Bengals perspective. So we are going to be doing that. Don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, but we've had some conversations and we we expect these things to be coming to <laughs> coming to the show. So. We'll be sure to, to let you know when those happen. And you may want to, again, subscribe to our channels to make sure that you don't miss those interviews when they occur. One last little thing. My son, Regan, turns three tomorrow. So I just want to say happy birthday to my son. Happy birthday, Regan. An early, early birthday. He's a great kid. And uh, we're, we're going to have some fun tomorrow and, and this weekend with the family. So, um, yeah. Uh, happy birthday, Rigi. Unfortunately, John, I'm, I'm being notified in the live chat. Yeah, I see it too. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, dude. Uh, but hey, it's like the fifth overtime game this year. I mean, Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> oh man, those those Cincy sports teams—they know how to do it, don't they? Um, well, hey, it's been a fun episode. It's been another long one, but uh, we've got a lot to talk about as this is a huge offseason for the Cincinnati Bengals. Keep it to Cincy Jungle for all the news, opinions, updates, analysis, breaking news, all that good stuff. Our show is on there as well. Get our show on a number of different platforms. Check out the other shows on the Cincy Jungle channel within the SB Nation podcast network. Thanks for tuning in live. Thanks for downloading the show after the fact. We'll see you next time.